Hi, everyone. As Stuart said, my name is Andy, and my family and I, we've been coming to HT for almost a year now. We have four kids, three are in the youth group, and uh, one, my wife Miranda, is moving into her flat up in Edinburgh where she is a student. We've been in the UK for 11 years. You can tell by my accent. There are all these Americans around Cambridge. I'm one of them. We've been here for 11 years, the last 10 of which were spent, uh, in, the first 10 of which were spent in Durham, which we painfully miss. But this church has really ministered to us, and we're very grateful to you all. When, when preachers come forward and approach a pulpit or a lectern, we, we are weighed down by the burden to practice what we preach, to be a model of our message, to back our words with seasoned experience. Well, finally, folks, I have been given a sermon title for which I am eminently qualified, Finding We Fail. I, I sort of imagine that they're sitting around the table with the HT staff thinking, who could we get to preach? Who would be really good for this one? Ah, oh, there's this new guy, Andy. No, probably didn't happen that way. We're in the sermon series, as Stuart uh, just recounted for us, the four stages of faith looking at Jesus and Peter. We've seen him at stage one responding to God's call. We've watched him step out of the boat, learning to walk by faith. And then there's the inevitable stage we look at today, finding we fail. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider the failure of another disciple, and as we reflect on our own failures, let us do so hearing this other word you speak. But I go before you to Galilee. In your name, Lord Jesus, the name that is highest and best. Amen. It was when I was a student at the University of Georgia that I became on fire for Jesus. Does anyone use that language, on fire, for Jesus? Is that just, just Americans? Okay, some, okay, every now and then. Yeah, well, uh, I... Uh, I'd heard the gospel all my life growing up as a little kid in, in the church, but now it arrested me with fresh power. I was praying, I was reading the Bible with fresh energy and vigor. I was discovering a God of biblical proportions while reading the Bible. And I gave up all my dreams. I had planned to become a billionaire in business and then run for uh, the U.S. presidency. Turns out that is a proven path to the White House, as we all know. Uh, but now that I was on fire for Jesus as a student, I was giving up my ambitions. I started daydreaming of weird things like becoming a missionary, taking the gospel to the nations. I remember one day being on my knees in a prayer room at the Methodist Student Center in Athens, Georgia, and I prayed, Lord, just whisper a country in my ear and I will walk to it. And I know that that might mean I'd have to become a stowaway in a boat, but I was dead serious. I would do anything Jesus asked me to do, except my homework, because that was unspiritual business, except balance my checkbook maybe, because that was just ungodly faff. I envisioned myself like the greats in these biographies I was reading. I was devouring biographies of the great missionaries. Well, if you want to be inspired by great followers of Jesus, read the biographies, but do not read Mark's gospel. Mark shines the spotlight on one character, and one character only, and of course, that is Jesus. Everyone else, including the disciples, they are minor characters. They're not quite supporting characters because they're not very supportive. Let's just trace through the disciples so far in Mark very quickly. 
there's this great parable of the sower and the types of soil. You know this, right? The disciples say, hey, can you explain this to us? Jesus says, if you don't understand this parable, how will you understand all the parables? Later in chapter 4, they're in a boat. There's a storm. They panic in the boat. Then Jesus rebukes the storm, and he says, why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? At the end of chapter 6, they're in a boat. They panic in the boat. Once again, not only is there an awful storm, but there's a ghost, a phantom, walking on the water. Of course, it's Jesus. And despite the growing evidence that this is the divine Lord of the cosmos, still they are afraid. Mark tells us, for they did not understand. Their hearts were hardened. Hardened hearts, misunderstanding, being afraid, having no faith. These are the disciples. This is their profile so far. But then we come to chapter 8, and Peter steps very briefly into the positive spotlight. We have a very promising moment with Peter. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asked his disciples. It's a very climactic moment. The reader is full of anticipation. If an ancient world movie director had Mark as the script, this would be where she would have the the music swelling and anticipation building our excitement about this response that will reveal the identity of this demon-casting, storm-stilling, disease-healing Lord. You are the Christ, Peter says. Yes, nailed it. But then Jesus explains his very odd idea of what it means to be the Christ, as one who will suffer and die for his people, as a king who will bleed and suffer, who will become the least. Peter, Peter wants to really be the director of the script. He's read the script. It's his own script. And he knows that Jesus clearly hasn't read the script. So he takes Jesus aside. You could just see him putting his arm on Jesus' cloak there. And, and he explains what it really means to be the Christ. He rebukes Jesus. So far, that word's been used in Mark to describe what Jesus does to storms and to demons. And then Peter does this to Jesus. Oh, how we cringe. Peter. And then, of course, Jesus must rebuke our momentary fleeting hero with, get behind me, Satan, for you have set your mind not on the things of God, but on human things. Jesus makes two more predictions about the fact that he's going to suffer, that his messianic vocation is one of suffering and dying. The next one, he's barely got the words out of his mouth, right? And then he realizes that the disciples are arguing over who's going to be the greatest. I'm going to be the least of all and die on the half of everyone, and they're arguing who's going to be the greatest. And the third episode where he predicts his suffering He's barely got the words out of his mouth again, and James and John are there with a question. We we really have a request of you. We want to sit one at your right hand and the other at your left. Oh, how we cringe. Because a bit later, Mark will tell us exactly what it means to be at the right hand and the left of Jesus. Who gets that position? The criminals, crucified, one at his right hand, and when it is left, you do not know what you're asking, Jesus says to John and James. This negative resume of the disciples leads us into our scene that has been read to us, this scene with Peter here near the end of Mark's gospel. Peter's most impressive moment, it's not the confession in, John, in Mark 8. It's that very initial moment when Jesus says, follow me. And with his brother, he leaves his nets behind. After that, we're mostly downhill. 
when it comes to Peter and his discipleship. Mark does not offer a flattering portrayal of the disciples. But we love Peter, don't we? And surely he's well-meaning. You're the Christ, he proclaims. Well, that's something. Okay, but to correct the Christ over what it means to be the Christ, that's a step too far. Let me come out there in the water with you, he says. We, we saw that from Matthew's gospel. Points for Peter for audacious courage, right? But then, of course, he, he sinks because he lacks faith. Okay, that's not a step far enough. He, he even sees Moses and Elijah with Jesus transfigured on the mountain. Oh, I know, he says. We'll build three tents, one for each of you. Moses and Elijah. It's their turn to cringe. Look, maybe you're well-meaning here, but there's no point in building three tents. There's only one worth focusing on here in this scene. All these scenes featuring Peter and the disciples lead up to this scene in our passage today. Weeks have passed since those mishaps. Months, maybe some years have passed. So, you know, they're growing, right? Peter is surely progressing through the stages of faith. Surely he is maturing. And we come to this sensitive moment, a moment charged with anticipation. It's fraught with anxiety. And Jesus makes another uncomfortable announcement to his disciples. You will all fall away. Let the reader understand, you will all fall away. In the Greek, it's stumble, fail. Now, it is very important to hear what Jesus says next, but if you're doing, those of you doing GCSEs, I mean, you know, right? That's a conjunction. I wasn't waiting for an amen. It's okay. Uh, Praise God for the divine conjunction, but Jesus, right? But Jesus says this, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. He sets up a rendezvous with the failures. Look, friends, you're all going to fall away. But even so, I am making plans to meet up with you very soon. We're going to get together again. We will regather. I make rendezvous with failures. When Jesus speaks about his resurrection in Mark, no one ever hears him. But what Peter does hear very clearly on this evening is this ludicrous prediction that you will all fall away. Verse 29, Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. In the Greek, it's even more emphatic. Not I. They, this lot, maybe, probably. Not I. Not this guy, Peter says. We see here that Peter has a sense of exceptionalism. He is the hero of his own fantasy story about his life as a disciple. He is in imaginative control of the narrative, and he's the star. He envisions himself as a faithful lead actor here. He's not afraid to make a comparative self-assessment. He compares himself with these others. We'll see him next week comparing himself with the beloved disciple. But here he has weighed up the devotion of his fellow disciples, and he is convinced he will remain on the positive side of the scales, on the correct side of history. Others may fall, 
but not I. I will not. Can we relate to Peter's personal exceptionalism? Other business leaders or political leaders or ministry leaders may have ended up in scandal, but not I. Other Christians may have committed adultery. I will not. Peter, once again in our scene, corrects Jesus. But Jesus explains to him, truly I say to you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But, we read, Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same thing. God, just whisper a country and I will walk to it. I once prayed. I heard nothing that day in response to that prayer. But a couple of years later, before gap years were socially acceptable, okay, my parents had never heard of a gap year, mind you. I, uh, I rejected the pleas of my family. I quit my job. I lived by faith, or at least that is I moved into the home of a friend of mine and lived in their, their basement. Uh, I, uh, and then I, then I got on a plane with a handful of tickets that would get me 360 degrees around the world. I had about enough money for 180 degrees of the globe. Like Peter, I was well-meaning, mostly. I wanted to leave behind my nets. I wanted to step out of the boat and learn to walk by faith. Maybe I also wanted to put on display my impressive allegiance, maybe. Maybe like Peter, I wanted to be the spiritual hero in the story, the star of my discipleship journey. And then I ended up stranded after six weeks with barely any funds in Southeast Asia, stricken with, well, let's just say something terrible was happening to my digestive system. And I'd been too frightened and too ill to share much of the gospel among the nations. I remember once actually being on a boat, a tiny little sampan on the Chao Praya River. It was supposed to be a guided tour of the canals in Bangkok. Well, uh, once the, the official tours ended, someone set up a little stand and said, hey, I'll take you on a tour in this little tiny boat. And a couple of friends and, my, we, friends and I, we, we went with this person. And after two hours, we were completely lost in the canals. And we started seeing jungle. I thought, oh, no, this guy is going to kill us and drop us in the canal. And my parents will know, we were right. This guy's an idiot. What was he thinking? And I panicked in the boat. I demand that the guy turn us back around. Well, he was totally legitimate. We finally did get back somewhere. But I panicked in the boat. There was one star, one hero only in my story. That is Jesus. Happy to meet with me in Bangkok and Kuala Lumpur, even in small town Georgia, but especially in Galilee. If I must die with you, I will not deny you, Peter said. Just whisper a country and I will walk to it, I prayed. So much confidence in our discipleship. Peter is entirely self-confident in his loyalty and he is just as entirely self-deceived. Because sometimes we fail. Later in the night, Peter is in a courtyard. Nearby, Jesus is being questioned if he is the Christ. I am, he replies. Peter is being questioned if he is one of those with the Nazarene Jesus. I am not, 
he denies. Not I. Not this guy. Sometimes we fail. And that night, Peter denies it three times. When the rooster crows a second time, the memory of what Jesus had just spoken to him explodes into his mind, and we read this. He broke down and wept. Now, next week, we will look to John 21, a detailed scene about Peter's restoration to Jesus, whom he has betrayed, that comes along with a commission into ministry. But that is for next week. Today we linger in the darkness a bit with faint echoes in our ears of a rooster crowing and a broken man weeping. Sometimes we fail. As I close here, I just want to bring up three questions about how we deal with failure as disciples. First, how does our society deal with failure? There are two ways that I think we can detect in our wider society, the way we deal with failure. And one is to shame, cancel, and reject, right? Once a misstep is made, there's the impulse to publicly shame, to call people out. And oddly, as our secular culture turns more and more away from religion, it becomes more and more hyper-moralistic and increasingly judgmental and self-righteous, oddly enough. How does our society deal with people who fail? We shame, cancel, and reject. Or, here's the second way we deal with it, We deny the denials. We falsify the failures. In other words, we pretend that the failure is not really a failure or it really didn't happen. You you did the best you could in this situation. It's not that bad. Anyone would have done that. And though perhaps well-meaning, it's not necessarily the better approach. The first approach to shame, to cancel, reject that has the advantage of being honest. The second approach has the advantage of being pastoral and compassion, compassionate. But honesty without compassion is dangerous. And compassion without honesty is dangerous. Mark calls us to linger at the end of chapter 14. A rooster crowing, a man broken and weeping. We should be honest. We do fail. Denying that, rushing through the sorrow over sin, it's no good. But if we stay there, balled up in the corner of the courtyard somewhere, with Peter, messed up, disillusioned, crushed and broken, this leads only into darkness. And some of us know that darkness only too well. So how does Jesus respond when we fail to those who fail? It's very simple. He acknowledges the failure, and he restores. He is honest. You will all fall away. But he is compassionate. After I'm raised up, I will go before you and meet you in Galilee. I'll be waiting for you, you bunch of failures, every one of you. Let's reunite. Meet me in Galilee. Last question. How do we deal with ourselves? when we fail. All right, this is where the preacher becomes less qualified. The way we should respond with ourselves when we fail is this. We should go to Galilee. That is, go to the Jesus rendezvous. Fail towards Galilee. Fail in the direction of Jesus waiting to regather us and restore us. I felt like a failure so much, throughout so much of this past year. I felt like I made a decision that 
uprooted my family and was extremely painful for them. I, I, I've regretted it. I've wept. I've felt awful about this. I feel like I let them down. Maybe Jesus was calling me out of the boat, folks. Maybe so. But maybe I just wanted to have an impressive walk in the water. I don't know. This past year has been so difficult. I've lived balled up and miserable in a corner of a courtyard with Peter, broken, messed up. But if Peter had stayed there, what if you and I stay there? We've got to go to Galilee, don't we? To fail towards Galilee. One last point. Turn with me to Mark 16. Final point is this. You are not the exception to God's grace. Preacher, heal thyself. Jesus is waiting for you as well. Remember when I mentioned Peter's exceptionalism. Peter views himself as the exception. Even though all will fail away, I will not. Well, on one side of the coin of personal exceptionalism is I am the best. (laughs) Of course, the other side of the coin of personal exceptionalism is, I am the worst. And when we fail, we may think we are exceptions to grace. Here, what what the angelic figure announces to the women who discover the empty tomb of Jesus, it's 16 verse 6. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Amen. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples. What's the next line? And Peter, that he is going before you to Galilee. Peter is not the exception to God's grace, and neither are you, and neither am I. Go to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would send your spirit to bring conviction to us where we need it, but also to point us toward Galilee. We pray that we would have stirred within us the hope of the gospel. Raw honesty, yes. But absolute confidence, not in ourselves as disciples, but in the power of your grace and in the power of your spirit to raise us up to follow you faithfully in your own strength. Amen.